This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Well, good morning, Nags Head Church. How's it going? Are y'all glad to be here? I can tell. Very good. Y'all are doing a great job worshiping and making yourself known. Um, I'm Scott Williams, uh, not only the area director for FCA Northeast North Carolina, but I'm your new pastor of assimilation here at Nexhead Church, and I'm excited to be bringing you the word today. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not Pastor Rick. Um, I apologize for that because he has been on a roll lately. I've been going to this church for about 10 years, and I must say the last few months he has been killing it. So go back and um, go to the podcast and listen, I guess. Um, anyway, but we're glad you're here, and hopefully the Lord's got some cool things in store for us today. Um, we're going to be continuing our lessons, our uh, messages on raising the bar, right? And uh, we've been going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that uh, famous um, presentation that Jesus does in Matthew 5. We're going to continue what we've been doing uh, today and we're going to be talking about loving your enemies. Is that even possible? Can we do that? Well, we're going to find out as we raise the bar. So since this is going to be kind of a tough message maybe for some of us, because uh, uh, I'm going to shoot you straight and kind of cut deep, but uh, uh, let's just uh, let's take some time and pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here at Nagshead Church and uh, be up here talking about you and sharing your word, Lord. Uh, I pray you would speak through me because I, by myself, have absolutely nothing to say. And so I pray you would guide and direct and empower me. Um, thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And uh, it is an awesome, amazing thing uh, that we get to read your word and uh, that you get to teach us and guide us. So I pray you would do just that this morning. Uh, remove any distractions. Um, thank you for the worship we've had. And I, I pray that as we continue to worship through your word that you will continue to speak to our hearts. You know, I do thank you for Rick. I thank you for the great job he's doing. Um, I thank you for Milepost 13 band and for uh, just the folks, who, all the folks who make uh, worship and, and coming to this church possible every Sunday morning, Lord. It is a team effort, and I'm thankful for each one of them. So, Lord, just help us to uh, listen to what you have to say to us today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking about Matthew 5, 43 through 48 today. That's going to be our basic text. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find a Bible somewhere near you, uh, in one of the seats probably, and uh, that's going to be found on page 889 in that Bible. Uh, if you've got your own Bible, I'm not sure what page it is, but hopefully you know where Matthew 5 is. Um, and with this series, Raising the Bar, um, we're talking about living as kingdom-minded citizens in uh uh, what hopefully is going to end up being the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God is we're living through that. Um, part of, uh, in this great passage of Matthew 5, we see Christ addressing, addressing the disciples back then, and I think it's also true to say he's addressing all the followers since that time, including us, about the expectations of those who wish to be part of his kingdom. And I like how the Believer's Bible commentary kind of explains it, so I'm just going to read what they have to say. So um, living and being part of his kingdom, this whole topic, this whole passage, revolves around the character and conduct expected of his subjects. It was intended to be the constitution or the system of laws and principles which was to govern the king's subjects during his reign. 
Now, I think you would agree with me, in a day and age when the proverbial bar seems to be getting lower and lower and lower, we're challenged by Christ himself through his word to live up to his standards, the standards of his kingdom. And these standards were challenging even back then, and I'd say even hard, for the hearers of his day and his audience, especially for the religious leaders of the day, because raising the bar meant to stand up to the low standards even back then that their religious and social cultural had settled for. So let's uh, again look at that passage, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, follow along with you, and we'll have it up on the screen too if, if you need to uh, see that. But we're going to um, take a look at this, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? Do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Wow, he's calling some people out. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So wait a minute, time out. So we're... We're supposed to love our enemies? Are you telling me God expects us and even commands us to pray for those who made our lives miserable? Those who've hurt us? Come on, and on top of that, we've got to be perfect just like God is perfect? How in the world can we live up to that? Well, we can't. Well, anyway, hey, I guess that wraps up for today. Thanks for coming. Drive home safely. We'll see you next week, right? Um, I mean, how in the world can we do that? That's impossible. Or is it? Or is it? possible. As we look closer at Jesus' words and their meaning, we'll get a better understanding of what it means to be citizens living under his awesome reign. Now, as I was preparing this, I thought, you know what? We hear the, we hear the word enemy a lot. What does that really mean? What exactly is an enemy? Who are our enemies? What is, what is an enemy versus what is really not an enemy? Um, like, for instance, the guy who honked at Chloe and me yesterday while we were driving down the bypass because, or the beach road because we weren't driving like he wanted us to drive. And by the way, I was getting ready to get out and tell him how much I didn't appreciate his honking at us. But that's not really an enemy. How about the guy who's driving uh, in the passing lane 20 miles an hour on the bypass? Kind of feels like it, but that's not our enemy either. Um, now, Redskin fans? Are there any Redskin fans here? That's what I thought. The Cowboys are not your enemy. Um, I was going to make a mention about Democrats versus Republicans, but I decided to go ahead and just uh, not, even, not even go there. Um, but thinking about who our real enemies are and what they did to become that way, it was for me kind of sobering because as I, again, prepared for this, I was kind of like, do I have any enemies? What does that even mean? What does that look like? So I thought a good place to start would be definition of enemy, right? So uh, back in the day, I would have looked in the dictionary but now I just looked up Wikipedia, and I said, what's, what's enemy? What is that? And so I looked this up, and it said, enemy, definition, one who feels hatred toward, intends injury to, or opposes another. That makes sense. A foe. Or one who opposes or is hostile to an idea or cause. Okay, opposes, hostile, yeah. How about something destructive or injurious? Injurious, injurious. And its effects, okay? And lastly, one that is antagonistic to another. 
antagonistic to another. One seeking to injure, we've heard injure before, overthrow a confound an opponent. So that kind of gives you a good idea of at least what the experts say an enemy is supposed to be. So um, I want you to think about who this morning your enemies are, if you have any. What exactly does that even mean anyway, having an enemy? Now to some of our students sitting here, they may have images of that bully that picks on them constantly, who seems to always be against them, opposing them, making their lives even harder, if that's possible, at school. To some, it may be that unseen individual that stole your identity, ruined your credit, and purchased hundreds, if not thousands of dollars worth of items pretending to be you. Now, in a crowd this large, some of you are right now thinking of that person who violated you, abused you in some unthinkable way that has changed you forever. Maybe to some... It was the spouse that cheated on you and the person that he ran away with. To some, especially uh, in certain parts of our country this week, it's the evil individuals who perpetrated that murderous ramp- those murderous rampages last weekend in El Paso and Dayton, and along at this point the long list of despicable mass murderers from our recent history. Often when I hear the word enemy, I think about uh, our, our uh, military men and women, our heroes who stand up against evil, oppression, and chaos around the world. Our beloved World War II heroes who fought against Nazi and Japanese aggression. One such veteran's story was outlined in the book Unbroken, An Unbroken Path to Redemption. Perhaps you read that, maybe you saw it. Louis Zamperini, he was a pilot whose plane crashed in the Pacific on a search and rescue mission. Out of his whole crew, it was he and two others who survived. And he survived 48 days at sea. Can you imagine floating for 48 days with sharks and having nothing to eat? Uh, Talk about rough, but then it didn't get any better because he was taken captivity by Japanese forces. And for over two years, two years, he was a prisoner of war. He was mercilessly tortured by the enemy. Now, when I hear the term enemy, that's who I think about. The stories like Mr. Zamperini's. Now, being that we're next at church, I think it'd be a little crazy if we didn't look at what God had to say about enemies and who really are enemies. Ephesians 6.12 is a great verse for us to look at, and it reads this, and I think it's up there on the screen. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul is saying there, it may seem like our struggle is against people and against things going on here, but it's actually got its basis in another realm, if you will. He points out in this scripture that as believers, we can't ignore the true nature of our real enemy, Satan, or the spiritual forces of evil that are truly behind a lot of these examples that we talked about. In fact, I was reading something even yesterday about the killer from those uh, Dayton shootings last week that was very chilling, and I'm not going to give him any attention and time that uh, he doesn't need, but I found it interesting that a lot of writings, he was a worshiper of Satan and really had some weird, demonic type of stuff. So some would say, well, we're just going to dismiss him as a lunatic. But I would say as, as believers, as Christ followers that believe in the spiritual world, Should we not maybe even consider that there's some spiritual things going on there? It's a spiritual issue uh, that a lot of people aren't talking about. So I'm here to tell you, after 25 years of ministry, the spiritual realm is a real, it's a powerful one, and it influences the behavior and actions of evil manifested 
in this world what we can see and what we can feel. Now, I'm not the expert on this type of stuff, and I'm not really exactly sure how it all works, <clears throat> Excuse me, but we can't ignore this reminder from Paul that we need to focus our attention on where the real struggle lies. Okay, time out. Here's another, uh, not warning, but disclaimer. Now, this message that we're talking about today is assuming that as believers, as Christ followers, trying to live as kingdom-minded believers, we are the recipients of an enemy's awful actions or words. Now, for some reason, you're sitting here and you think, you know what, I've been the instigator. I've been the enemy. Um, I've been the bully or fill in the blank at some point. Now, that's a whole other game, and we as your pastors want to help you uh, with that. But for the point of this message today, it's for those of us who've been on the receiving end of someone's hostility or opposition or injury. Okay? Y'all with me? Good. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, the Apostle Matthew records this passage, Matthew 5, to inform us again of his kingdom-minded characteristics. It's a set of expectations for those Christ followers like me and like you seeking to serve the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but as a believer, again, I'm not sure how this is going to work or how it's going to look, but I'm looking forward to that one day when I get to see Jesus face to face. That's going to be crazy. It's going to be awesome. But what I hope out of many things to hear is, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? That's what we want to hear uh, from the Lord himself. Now, for that to happen, we've got to live here and now on this earth with the ever-increasing awareness and knowledge of what awaits us and who awaits us in heaven. And after all, why wouldn't you want to obey, serve, love, and follow Christ after all he's done for us and all that he's preparing for us even right now? With grateful hearts, we don't get to, but, I'm sorry, we don't have to, but we get to live for Christ. Sure, he's commanded us to do certain things in Scripture, but why wouldn't we want to do what he expects in the first place? We get to experience a little bit of heaven on earth if we are obedient to Jesus' commands and live lives that are empowered and led by him. So we see a Jesus in this passage addressing the state of affairs of what was expected among those now following him. And again, this was true back then in the first century, and I'd say it's true right now in 2019. In verse 43, we read, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Sure, it was the common knowledge that loving your neighbor was part of the duty of every law-abiding citizen, law-abiding Jew and God-fearing Gentile um, or non-Jew. And it's been one of these concepts that's been adopted, I mean, pretty much universally by every civic and religious organization out there. But it had, been become, it had become common back in the first century that along with loving your neighbor, you were expected to hate your enemy. That's quite a sharp, sharp contrast, isn't it? Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Come on. Um, but you'll not find that anywhere in the Old Testament at all. You can look all you want, but it's not going to, God never commands us to hate our enemies. Instead, it become ingrained in the religious life and culture of that day. I mean, after all, that's what you're supposed to do to your enemy, right? Hate them, because they hate you. At least according to the common understanding of the day. Then, Jesus says what we've been waiting for, but I tell you. And what is he doing, folks? He's raising the raising the bar. That's right. Thank you to all three of you who said that. His words took his hearers by surprise, as it often did, and it even stuns us some 2,000 years later. Jesus goes so far as to say we are not only to love our neighbors, but 
We're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Persecute you. What? But Jesus, you don't know what he did to me. But God, she put me through a lot of pain. How can I love and forgive those who did so much harm, so much hurt to me and my loved ones? If we were to live as kingdom citizens, as Christ followers, which I'm sure we're all trying to strive to do, looking to please the ultimate king, King Jesus, then this is where the bar has been raised. Okay, time out. Number two, just a little other disclaimer. When we talk about loving people, in some cases, have done irreparable damage and harm to us, our families, our friends, our reputations, etc., etc., who've smeared our past with unthinkable things that haunt us, I am in no way saying that we should be okay with that or excuse it. People need to be held accountable for their actions because, as you know, actions have consequences. I am not saying that we have to be friends with those who have harmed us or accept them or behavior somehow. I think the kind of love described here is that agape kind of love, which we find in the New Testament. It's that Greek word that means unconditional love that we see the love that's shown by God for us. When we don't deserve it, when we don't need it, he, he's there anyway. And, and it's never really probably, we should never expect to be paid back for it. But it's that kind of agape love we're talking about. It's looking at those people that we're talking about and seeing them as God sees them and praying that God would transform their hearts and their lives like he's transformed us. Is that easy to do? Absolutely not in many cases. I know that. But if we want to be genuine Christ followers, growing on our faith, walking with the Lord, the bar has been set. So first, if you're taking notes, get out your pen. We're going to be going over a lot of good stuff here, a lot of information. So first, what does that look like? Loving our enemies is countercultural. Loving your enemies, loving our enemies is countercultural. You know what our society says, look out for number one. It tells us to take care of those who take care of you and forget the rest. If you've got to step on some people on the way up the ladder of success, then by all means do that. Forget them. And those who've done us wrong, they ought to get what's coming to them, right? Ah, it's okay to love those that love us. It's a conditional type of love based on what somebody does for you. But in God's economy, we are going against the flow, aren't we? Going against the flow. The world doesn't understand to love and pray for those who hate us and persecute us. In fact, much of what we know about God, living out God's kingdom expectations, fly in the face of conventional thought wisdom. I mean, for instance, the first will be last. Turn the other cheek. Take up our cross daily. It's only when we die to ourselves that we will truly live. I mean, what? And you can go ahead and add verses 43 to 44 to that. Again, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <clears throat> that doesn't seem right, does it? It makes no sense at all, actually. It's like our world is topsy-turvy. Something's not right. And exactly that's the case. I like what C.S. Lewis once said, <clears throat> that in this world, everything is upside down. It's almost an exact opposite of the way things are in heaven what God has established. So uh, we should not be surprised. Next, loving your neighbor, uh, neighbors, loving your enemies is unnatural. Loving your enemy, the guy and the girl that hates you or has hurt you, I mean, it's unnatural, right? It's the exact opposite of what we want to do, isn't it? Not only does it not make any sense in the popular current of the day, it seems to go against our very own natural instincts. 
to get back at those who wish us harm or, or, or want evil uh, to come upon us. I mean, I was thinking about when I was in middle and high school, I used to get picked on constantly. I know it's hard to believe, but it happened. Um, and, uh, you know, the last thing I really wanted to do when I saw those people in the hallway was to love them. And uh, I don't think, you know, back then I could bring myself to pray for them either. Now, how about you and your circumstance? You're dealing with something today. The last thing you want to do is love that person who harmed you. Again, it goes against everything we feel like is natural. And it is. Um, looking, best for, looking back at verse 44, you almost got to have to do a double take and reread to make sure you read it right. But for the Christ follower, living out his commands is directly opposed to our natural way and the way the world does things. Am I right? The next verse indicates that loving your enemies is genuine and mature believers. Loving your enemies, loving our enemies is genuine and mature believers. Now, Christ didn't just suggest we love our enemies. I mean, he commanded it. He expects it. That verse again reads, that, that verse reads, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, doing this, doing this thing that seems impossible is actually showing that we're children of God. By praying for those who persecute us, the world stands up and takes notice since it's so foreign to the way of doing things. Loving our enemies isn't for the faint of heart or the weak of faith. Just as working out physically builds up muscle and keeps us in shape, working out our faith similarly builds us spiritually. Both take work and aren't easy. But you know when somebody's been hitting the gym, right? I mean, it's pretty easy to tell. And I think it's also uh, easy to identify somebody who's been hitting their knees, working out their faith. Someone may claim to know, love, may claim to know Christ and love him, but when the rubber meets the mo- road, their fruit is going to tell you exactly where they are. By showing us their fruit, especially in reaction to that kind of adversity, you can know how mature somebody is in their faith. Next, loving your enemies is impartial. Impartial. Loving your enemies is impartial. Now that closely aligns us with God and that he shows no partiality when it comes to his favor, grace, and love, right? Christ's death was for the whole world, regardless of socioeconomic position, race, family background, status, where you're from, on and on and goes. That verse there says, For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew's inclusion of these examples of the sun rising on both good and evil and the rain falling on both righteous and unrighteous reveal God's goodness and benefits to all, no matter who you are. The sun's magnificence and beauty and its rising this morning. Maybe some of you caught the sunrise or maybe the sunset this week. I mean, it has been incredible. Um, The magnificence and beauty and its rising or setting is revealed to the lady who sat on the beach to read scripture and pray as well as the man who woke up in another woman's bed today. Both get to enjoy the beauty of creation but may view it from a little different perspective. Also, the rain replenishes the gardens of both the pastor in town and the woman who claims to be an atheist. Both enjoy the benefits of God's provision, even though both may not agree on who provided it. So the whole world is not only subject to the laws God has put in motion, but they can enjoy the benefits of his creation and the systems he's put in place, whether they recognize it's from him or not. Next, 
along in your notes. Loving your enemies is unconditional. That next blank is unconditional. Verse 46-47 For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, what Jesus is practically saying, so you love those who love you back? Big deal. What's so special about that? Hey, show me something different, something powerful, something new. As kingdom citizens, again, just assuming that we all want to be kingdom citizens, we're to love all people regardless of who they are, what they've done. Those who love us, those who hate us, those who encourage us, and those who have done us harm. Again, this ties into the idea above that the love of Christ is impartial and extended to everybody, no matter what. Now, get this: Jesus compares Jesus compares followers who not only love who only love those who love them back to tax collectors and Gentiles. Now, to you. Eh, whatever, that may not be a big deal. But if you were a Jew in the first century, listening to Jesus say that, your jaw just hit the ground because there were probably no more two hated groups of people in the Jewish culture to the God-fearing Jew than non-Jews, like Gentiles, and tax collectors. Hated them. Hated them. Um, So to only show conditional love was no big deal. Even the most vilified people in their culture We're capable of doing that. So what a challenge. What a challenge. As I alluded to at the beginning of the message, loving our enemies is impossible. To be quite frankly, it's impossible. So what are we doing talking about it? Verse 48 reads, I mean, listen to this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, there's no way we can attain perfection on our own. Have you tried that? It's impossible because of our sinful, fallen nature. Now, in our own strength, with our own resources and our own education, and our own programs and trainings and assistance. I mean, you can't do it. It's unattainable. But that's what God's standard is. And it has been from the beginning. I mean, going back to the athletic, you might as well set the bar up 100 feet in the air because you just can't do that. How can we be perfect? How can you? When Christ lives in us and the Holy Spirit empowers us and lives through us, then we can see different supernatural results, can't we? Only through Christ can we attain God's standard, only through Jesus. To forgive the unforgivable, to love the unlovable, to pray for the instigator, that's only possible when the indwelling Holy Spirit fills us and strengthens us for this humanly impossible task. You just can't do it apart from Christ. And finally, number eight in your notes, loving our enemies is truly reflective of Christ. is truly reflective of Christ. It's tied to the point above related to being seen in a genuine, mature Christ follower. The mark of a kingdom-minded citizen is to be perfect, right? Just as God is perfect. And his standard is for us to love our enemies. Now, of all people, Jesus himself set the example here as seen in his forgiving those who had just put him on the cross. I mean, he's up there on the cross. People are hurling insults at him. And what does he pray? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. I mean, are you kidding me? Wow, what a Savior. He just didn't set the standard. He lived it out and gave us an example to follow, and then he empowers us to do that. He empowers us. 
As we strive to reflect Christ and his character in our lives, nothing stands out more than the supernatural, something that can only be explained by the Holy Spirit's work. That really stands out. So, if you're following along at home, we started off defining exactly what an enemy is and where our focus should be, really. Then we've just described all those characteristics of a kingdom-minded person, a citizen of another kingdom, if you will. Now we get to look at the tangible results, the practical outworkings of those of us who are kingdom-minded as we live out our faith, able to forgive and love our enemies. First, loving your enemies frees you. Love, loving your enemies frees you. That's number one. They're in kingdom-minded results. What does it free you from? But it frees you from a life of bitterness, heavy burdens, anger, and strife. Now, you may have heard the old adage, bitterness is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. Clinging to grudges makes a difficult life even harder. It sucks the joy, the rest, and the peace from your soul. Now, listen, I know there's plenty to be upset about, and there are plenty of wrongs that need to be righted. I mean, many of us wait for justice to be finally carried out, right? Some of, some of us have lived through trying times, experiences that could have very well destroyed us. But by God's grace and mercy, he has spared us and is redeeming us. We shouldn't give the enemy any footholds any more than we do in our lives or any help in destroying us. He does a good enough job doing that himself. And you know what? When we have unfettered bitterness and revenge, that's exactly what happens. It destroys you from the inside out. I mean, that's, I mean, that's what the enemy does. That's, he's here to kill, steal, and destroy. So whatever we're going through that is intended for evil, God can, and he, all, he, he always is in, he's, he's in this business. He can bring good out of it, and he can use it as a testimony that one day can encourage others who are going through the very same thing. Um, okay, you're next. I made a little mistake, so you might want to put a little 1A under that. Uh, the tech people are awesome. The people who provide our uh, um, notes are awesome. This is on me. I dropped the ball, so sorry. Um, so second, loving our enemies identifies you. And then we'll jump back to two in just a second. But in that little space, you can put loving our enemies identifies you. Our true, As we mentioned before, our true nature is revealed under trying circumstances. One of the marks of a genuine Christ follower is loving others, as seen in John 13, 34, and 35. So we've got that up on the screen, and I'd love for us to read this together, all together. Are you ready? A new command I give you. There we go. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you... Think somebody's trying to get a point across there? Love one another. Now, hey, listen, truth be told, in this specific context of this one particular passage, John is relaying the account of Jesus instructing his disciples to love other disciples and believers, not just generally loving everybody, which we need to do anyway. He quotes Jesus as saying, by loving each other like he has done for us, people will know that we belong to him. Again, loving each other, he refers to other believers. You say, what's the big deal? I'm glad you asked. I share this to say that in some circles, we who are in Christ have probably had misunderstandings, maybe clashes, problems with, or even hatred towards other Christians, other believers. Because life happens, people get hurt, things happen. 
So I would ask, how can we genuinely display love for those who hate us from the outside the family of God if we can't even do that to those who are inside the family that God expects us to love anyway? Something to think about for me and you. Um, okay, moving back down, back on your bulletin on number two, loving our enemies heaps burning coals on their heads. Heaps burning coals. What the heck does that mean? Some of you are finally saying, finally, now you're talking. Body, physical harm to those who've done us wrong. Bring it on. Well, not really. Uh, the term burn, uh, heaping burning coals doesn't refer to some kind of torture, but it comes from Romans 12. In your, in your notes, it may say Romans 9. Again, I apologize. My bad. But it's Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. And I think that goes really great with this passage we're talking about right now. So follow along, if you will. Romans 12, 19, 21. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, hmm, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. What? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Say what? In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow. I love how the Believer's Bible Commentary describes this phrase, burning, heaping coals, or heaping burning coals. Heaping burning coals, yeah, I always... Anyway, Christian, listen to this. Christian love doesn't destroy its enemies with violence, but converts them by love. Let me say that again. Christian love doesn't destroy its enemies with violence, but converts them by love. To heap live coals on someone's head means to make him ashamed of his hostility by surprising him with unconventional kindness. That was a mouthful. Let me read that last part. To heap live coals on someone's head means to make him ashamed of his hostility by surprising him with unconventional kindness. Hey, you want to confound somebody who's mistreating you, harassing you, making your life a living hell? Then try responding to their hatefulness with kindness. This reminds me of a great quote from uh, the awesome Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he once said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. He, he, he knew all about that, didn't he? Again, the kind of love we're talking about here is that agape type, that unconditional type, which God demonstrated and still demonstrates for us when we sure didn't deserve it. I've heard many examples, even the last week or two, of friends and acquaintances who've experienced these kind of hardships, of those who were opposed to them, those who've been mocked, who took advantage of them. And you probably know people as well. I mean, just, just the last two or three weeks, I've, I've heard from somebody who was on the receiving end of mockery at work because of their faith. And I even heard of a, a case, which I still can't believe, of parents abusing their children. If I can be transparent myself, I am working even now on completely forgiving some people myself and letting go of wrongs done to me and my family. Now listen, just because I'm one of your pastors and I've been in ministry 25 years doesn't mean I'm not human and don't struggle with things. Um, don't face adversity. We all do that. This example of living as kingdom citizens, even though it was written a long time ago, I'm telling you, that might have been written yesterday. Lord, I thank you for the amazing grace and love that you display towards us and that you can give us as we live in this upside-down world. 
thank you that you empower us and that you instruct us and you allow us to get to follow you and to do the impossible because it's only through you can we do what we have heard about today. Lord, there are many in here who've, who've been hurt deeply, who need to forgive, who need to let bitterness go, who need to work on loving their enemy. And I pray that you would begin doing that in their hearts even this morning if they haven't. And those who have been the instigator, who have been the bully or the enemy at some point, Lord, may they find it in themselves to, with your help to go and seek reconciliation. Lord, may we, we as Nags Head Church and as the church in general be that kind of a place that can help prompt healing and peace and, uh, and uh, loving our enemies, something as crazy as that. So thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to do that this morning. And thank you as we get a chance to continue to worship and continue to live out uh, being citizens of a kingdom of another world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God. Love others. Reach the world.